Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself again to everybody out there listening? Yeah, Robbie. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm uh, Jeff Lockwood. I'm a professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming. I uh, spent the first 15 years of my career as a, as a research entomologist in the uh, College of Agriculture in the last 20 years as this professor of natural sciences and humanities working in fields of things like environmental ethics and environmental justice um, over in the College of Arts and Sciences. So um, I had a little bit of a metamorphosis in the middle of my career, but uh, I've tried to pull together both the humanities and the sciences in terms of the work that I've done in the last, last decade or so. And as fascinating as insects are, they do have a weird history when it comes into leading into the warfare usage of insects, which gets to the topic we'll be talking about today, which is Unit 731, which a lot of people don't really know that much about. Uh, and I'm curious how you came across, maybe give a breakdown for me and the audience out there listening of Unit 731 and its head, Hiro Ishii. Um, yeah, so I, when I was in graduate school, that was a long time ago, um, and actually, we go back before that. So I grew up. No, um, when I was a kid, um, I loved, I don't know why, I loved reading um, war novels, war stories, particularly World War II. I, I even had the comic, I don't know, if, you know, comic books, right? We call them graphic novels now. But um, Sergeant Rock was one of my favorite. And he was this, you know, this, you know, the tough guy in World War II who was fighting the Nazis. And there was something about, war and and it's kind of unimaginable but heroic as well as villainous qualities it brings out the best and the worst in 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 humanity in many ways in terms of courage and heroism as well as depravity and evil um and so that i mean that was always kind of you know a uh, interest to me and then studying entomology um maybe it was inevitable that i would put together uh, these two interests, right? Insects and warfare. Um, I remember reading a, a, a book in grad school um, by, uh, uh, on biological warfare. And there were relatively short passages in there about the use of insects, but it looked like there was enough to, to follow up on. And so I kept a file um, as I would run across bits of history or stories. And that file grew over a very long period of time until there was uh, enough material in there for um, for my book, which is called Six-Legged Soldiers. Um, and so it, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's a fascinating combination of, of science and philosophy, or science in particular, and ethics. Um, and what does it mean to have, uh, for someone to commit a war crime? I mean, is there you know, we have rules of war. Shouldn't war just be all out? But uh, it, it isn't. And and there is this kind of weird civilizing influence that we have on war, such that all weapons are not are not deemed to be equal. Some are deemed to be illegal. I don't think you can apparently attack the enemy's eyes from what I've heard is like a unethical thing in war, which I'm like, wait a minute. I thought war has ethics from what I've seen. It doesn't look like it has any ethics at all, but apparently there's some ground rules kind of like how dueling was back in the day. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't, I don't know about the eyes given that, you know, we, we, we have used irritating gases in the course of, well, we've used those to suppress riots for that matter. Um, and, and they're called lacrimating agents or tear gases, right? Um, and actually, that was an interesting question in, in Vietnam, because we use lacrimating agents in order to flush the Viet Cong out of tunnels. And the question was, did that constitute chemical warfare, which had been banned by the Geneva Convention? Um, so, yeah, so we had this Geneva Convention, which and, uh, you know, following World War One, where there was, you know, and it was driven largely by the poison gas in, in World War One. Um, which uh, nations came together and said, no, nah, you can blow people up and shoot them, but you can't poison them with gas. Do you believe like with the biological weapon ban treaty, do you believe that it was because they just kept manufacturing? It was just not, it was not an effective weapon. Or do you believe there was another reason behind it? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. And actually it's in, it's particularly interesting in that the Geneva convention um was 
was weirdly, so there was this, what they called the Geneva Disarmament Conference um, in 1925, um, and it banned biological weapons, right? And so the question is, well, why would it ban biological weapons? And at that time, um, they were seen largely as being ineffective, right? And why would they be ineffective? Because if you spread a disease into the enemy, then you're spreading the disease into your own troops. Now, you know, since that time and even up to that time, it turns out there's some end runs around that that are, for instance, you immunize your own troops and then you use the uh, the pathogen against the enemy. Um, and so some people thought that, I mean, it was kind of an extension of the chemical warfare, right? Chemical, biological. And then later on, we add radiological warfare. Um, but what's interesting is the fact that it was banned in a perverse and twisted sort of way is what motivated our our villain of our story that is unit 731 and in particular shiro ishii he was uh, um he was actually a medical doctor and a uh, uh an army officer at the time and it occurred to him that there would not be an international treaty against a weapon unless countries thought the weapon had real potential why would you ban something that didn't have potential so he interpreted the ban as a signal that the other countries were already working on biological weapons, Japan was at risk of falling behind, and he'd better lead um, their military um, in the development of these weapons. And so he set out to, uh, on a world tour, basically, to discover uh, for his own purposes, if in fact, um, other nations were developing biological weapons. And so, you know, what, what was supposed to be a disarmament uh, conference turned out to be the catalyst for arming the Japanese um, military with biological weapons. Now, how did he get placed in this situation where he's running a biological weapons lab? <laughs> right. So, Shiro uh, Ishii is, I mean, so, okay, so there's a bunch of qualities he has. One is he's unusually tall. He's five foot ten, and he's got this booming voice. And so he is he is a powerful, physically powerful person. He was born into aristocracy, so he's got access to wealth as well as access to power. Um, and quite frankly, even from early on, it, he, he gave indications. He had the symptoms of being, quite frankly, a, a sociopath. Um, and that is, um, he seemed to behave as if other people were simply a means to his ends of ascending into power. Like the world revolves around him, basically. Oh yeah, yeah, and but it was interesting because I mean he was he was a I wasn't going to say he was a good sociopath he was an effective sociopath, insofar as he could be extremely obsequious right kind of fawning to those above him, but he could be domineering and absolutely arrogant to those at his level and below, so he pounded people below him and he sucked up to people above him. That's actually a pretty good formula for ascending into power. Then he goes and gets a medical degree. So that's really useful. And Japan was very much interested in public health. Um, uh, and then immediately after the medical degree, he um, he takes on a, a military appointment um, as trainee becomes a, a surgeon first lieutenant. Um, in in the uh, the Japanese military, and again, he's using these skills of manipulating other people. Um, and and one of his most important early experiences was on the island of Shikoku, where he was sent to figure out what was going on with what appeared to be the emergence of a new disease. And it was um, it was a mosquito-borne virus called Japanese bee encephalitis. Uh, the people were panicked. People were dying. They died these miserable deaths of high fever and chills and, and, and convulsions. And he sort of cracked the case in terms of what was going on. But what really planted the seed in his mind was how much panic that disease generated on, uh, among the people. And he thought, wow, right? If, if, if public health is, is, is curing disease, what if we could use disease to generate this level of panic and death? There were 3,500 people died um, in, in, in the initial outbreak. And so, um, again, what the Japanese government saw as an opportunity for him to work toward public health, he managed to sort of invert 
and imagine what could be done if one could work in terms of contrary to public health, starting diseases, spreading epidemics rather than, than quashing them. Kind of like being a person looking over an anthill. You get to watch everything kind of unfold. Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, I, I think that's not a bad description in the sense that most people don't feel a, um, a, a moral connection to the ants or any empathy to them, right? They're just objects, kind of interesting. And, um, you know, you might wonder to yourself, what are they doing and how can I how can I dominate them? And that basically was was Ishii's move. Not only how can I dominate others, but how can I um, acquire power? Did you get a sense that he had more of a focus on just wanting research or did he actually get a kind of kick twist from the whole experimenting on people? Because like I spoke to Stephen Kinzer, who did the MK Ultra thing with um, Sidney Gottlieb, and you, listen, you learn more about that guy. You, you start to realize he just wasn't thinking like how a normal person does. He kind of put on the work hat. And was like, I'm going to do this. And, you know, they're giving me the resources to do this. And this is what I got to do, which is not a way you want to think about any of this. But somehow people get it convinced in their brains that what they're doing is either a thing for their country or it's something. So I'm wondering if it, he's looking at it more of like helping out his country or if he's looking at it more of like I get to experiment on people and get the sick kicks. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to suggest it's both. Um, and in a sense. I mean, the experiments he ends up doing and the weapons he ends up developing are so perverse, um, so morally bankrupt, that there must be something within him that is deeply flawed psychologically. But he wouldn't have been given that opportunity if, you know, so he returns from this trip around the world and he's going to try to convince the Japanese military. Um, and this would have been... Um, you know, uh, 19, late 1920s. Uh, he, I think he returns in about 1930. Um, and they were pretty dubious when he left. But by the time he gets back, um, ultranationalism within Japan is really on the rise, aggressive expansionism. Um, and so they've really made a turn toward this kind of, you know, uh, aggressive nationalistic uh, stance toward the rest of the world. And the timing was perfect for him. So um, to an extent, I think he he probably had a sense that he was in service to uh, the emperor or in service to his nation. And of course, Japan at that time, the emperor was the nation. Um, and so there was a kind of loyalty. Remember, he grew up in an aristocratic family. And so he has this sense of being part of the power elite. Um, and so I think there was an element of patriotism, but I think it was more an element of pathology. And if your country's thinking about taking over other countries or being the baddest on the block, then whatever needs to your country might not be in the best interest of others. No, no, no. It's, um, you know, and, and, you know, not not to defend, you know, what what he does or what Japan does, but they were put in an extremely difficult situation economically, right, with with various blockades and embargoes. Um, embargoes and whatnot. So I, you know, I'm not going to justify their, their lashing out in war, but they were put in a pretty terrible position in terms of a country that wanted industrial development and economic expansion. Um, and so, you know, as in, you know, as in all conflicts, right, there's, there's almost always two sides to the story. It may not justify, I mean, we think about Hamas recently, right? I'm not going to justify that. But there is a kind of explanation, not a justification, but an explanation. And the same thing I think was true of, of Japan in the 1930s. I'm, I'm, we don't have to sit here and rationalize on this because it's me and you talking. I think we both understand where we're coming from. But when it comes into being put in a position like back against the wall and you feel like you, you will take the most extreme measures, I think everyone knows that. There's people that have no food that will end up eating like a cracker on the floor because that's the only thing that's going to keep them alive. So that makes a lot more sense. That would cause them to push into more extreme measures on how they either did research or they experimented or they did anything war-wise. And our, every country has done that before. So that's it. Yeah, that's a good perspective. I didn't think about that. Well, yeah. I mean, even Winston Churchill, um, and I guess there's pretty good evidence or records of this, um, was ready to use gas if there was a invasion of uh, the British homeland by the Nazis. And so if it was an existen a true existential crisis for England, 
he would have used gas. I think that's that's very likely, if if not certain. So yeah, when when you know when your life or the or the life of your nation or your people is you know comes down to that moment, then you know um, disarmament conferences and international agreements are lovely, but you're not going to die or allow your people to die based on abstract principles of that sort. When did Ishi move out of the public health kind of focus and start directing more towards war and more towards, I guess, effective means of creating a weapon? So that would have been, so not long after he returns from his trip, 1930, he ends up um, getting a promotion. Um, he's promoted uh, to major and he's now assigned to the Tokyo Army Medical College. Now, in principle, he was supposed to be working on um, you know, public health, but everybody knew, including uh, his superiors, that he was at the same time developing or experimenting or exploring opportunities for um, offensive biological warfare. And I guess maybe it's 1932 um, or thereabouts that he moves to Harbin, China. So this is a time at which the Japanese have have um, have occupied Manchuria. Um, in particular, the the um, the Kwantung Peninsula. So they're occupiers, and 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 uh, Ishii has taken his program to the point with animal experiments, where he knows that he wants to use human experiments, um, and he wants to use pathogens that are far more dangerous. And he can't do that in Tokyo, right? But you can do it in an occupied foreign land, and so he sees Harbin. Um, as as a as a real opportunity, and so he moves his laboratory um, to China. He then opens up a new facility at the at what what was named the Zhang Ma uh, prison camp. And of course, a prison camp is, if you will, is a wonderful opportunity for human experimentation because no consent. They, yeah, and the, and the Japanese police are sweeping up resistors, and they're being put into the prison camp. And so he's got a flow of of human guinea pigs, and and that that is is really where he gets off and running. Can I ask what some of those experiments are that he used on some of the prisoners, or what some of the tests that he runs are? Yeah, it's uh, I mean they're pretty horrific. So um, and and they're also fairly bizarre. So what he's doing early on is he's wondering or experimenting on which agents, which biological, you know, which pathogens uh, have the greatest potential. Um, and so it's kind of a shotgun approach early on. He's infecting people with brucellosis and cholera, typhoid, uh, venereal diseases, whooping cough. It's just, you know, how how easy it is to produce the pathogen, how fast does it kill? And then in a really strange and bizarre, and this is more later once he moves from um, Zhang Ma prison camp to his, to Ping Fan, which is the, the that's where, um, his unit becomes unit 731. Um, and it's at that time that he's into these sort of full-blown human experimentation. And they, for reasons that make very little scientific sense, um, they're infecting people. And then to determine the, um, the course of the disease within their bodies, they are vivisecting. They're, they are dissecting them while alive. Um, and their excuse is that uh, anesthetic would alter the tissues, right? Which is an, an extraordinarily <laughs> uh, implausible excuse. Um, and that's where it seems that sadism is actually the motivation. There's not a good scientific basis um, for him doing um, or for having his scientists. And you know, by this time, we're, we're talking about something like 3,000 scientists in that unit 731. So. I didn't want to skip you ahead till the unit 731 yet, but with, why did he leave the prison? If that's a perfect flow of traffic that's coming into his prison and he just has these lines up of patients. I mean, did he just feel like he could have better resources at a different spot? That seems like the perfect spot. If you're going to just experiment on people. You're right. It was the perfect spot except for, for one sort of fatal flaw. And that was the whole thing was fairly secret. Um, he had, you know, he had this, this wall built around it with razor wire and and uh, and a moat. I mean, it was it was very much kept secret. Except, um, and I don't remember the holiday. There was a Japanese holiday in which 
many of the uh, the guards were getting drunk, um, and there was a mass escape. And so prisoners got out. And when they got out, they contacted the Chinese, um, the resistance, and they told stories about what was going on inside this camp. And so um, the secrecy of the Zhang Ma prison camp collapsed. I mean, we're talking about a, a big facility, maybe, you know, 100 buildings or so. Um, and and so now the Japanese military is in this very difficult situation, right? And that is now that the, the cat is out of the bag or the rat is out of the cage, the question is, do we shut this down, right? And so on one hand, it didn't look like there was a whole lot of, and even at that time, it looked like there was a lot of apologetics going on internationally. It wasn't clear that the Geneva Convention was going to be enforced. Um, but the real key was, just in the midst of all of this, and this is 1936, in the midst of all of this, um, the Japanese catch some Russian spies. And the Russian spies have on them glass vials filled with the, um, the pathogenic agents of dysentery, cholera, and anthrax. So they had this positive evidence that the Russians were developing biological weapons. And so the question of, of whether do we abandon this um, you know, out of out of a worry of, of international condemnation, or do we double down? At that point, when they caught the spies with biological weapons, they doubled down. And that's where um, Ishii was able to sort of parlay that into a huge increase in funding. And that's where we get his building, I, I don't know, about 30, 40 miles south of Harbin, um, or his, his earlier prison camp, he builds um, Unit 731 uh, in in this place called Ping Fan. They basically raise a bunch of villages and they build this enormous facility, two square miles, hundreds of structures, crematorium, watchtowers. I mean, it just goes on and on. It was, it was an enormous uh, research and development and testing facility. Um, so that's why he moved. He moved because um, a prison escape outed what he, what he and his staff were up to. Um, but because of this this weird timing with having caught these Russian spies, the Japanese military said, we're doubling down. It seems like it's a multifactorial event of how that even came to be. The Russian spies seem to be the main catalyst in that, because if you know your enemy is doing the same thing that you're kind of doing in a sense, it only confirms that, especially getting the government funding on board as well, too. They had other units as well, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe you know that at 731, that there's 100 something. Forgot the other. Yeah. Unit. Yeah, there's an, um, I'm trying, there's a, uh, actually there were a number of, I think there were five or six units spread around eventually around China. Some were developing um, uh, methods for crop and livestock destruction. So they knew that famine could be effective. Um, most of the human experimentation was going on at, at Ping Fan. Um, they had other units. There's one called uh, Anda, and that's where they did their, uh, basically it was a proving ground. That's where they did their field testing. Um, you know, they would stake prisoners out in the field and then test various delivery devices to see if, in fact, they became infected. So, yeah, there was it was kind of a far flung network of of um, biological warfare. Um, and it wasn't all based on on human, uh, you know, targets. Some of it was based on agricultural targets. And it's at this time that that he really focuses and, and decides that there's basically two agents that are worth pursuing. One is bubonic plague and the other one is cholera. And those become the, um, you know, the, the pair of weapons that they really begin to invest in heavily, particularly at this time, um, uh, plague. So they were looking to do a massive amount of damage with this, I guess, one weapon instead of looking at like incapacitation, anything of that sort. They were more looking like what has the best kill rate Right. You want. So, I mean, plague works really well because works really well. Uh, plague works well for his purposes because they can mass produce um, the bacteria. They can mass produce rats and they can mass produce fleas. So they've got the trifecta of of the vector, the host and and the pathogen. Um, and, um, you know, throughout most of 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 Asia, most of China, um, there's there's an abundance of rats. And so once you get an outbreak started, it becomes self-perpetuating. 
right? Um, I mean, that's one of the problems. One of the problems with, say, a chemical weapon, right, is if you spray chlorine gas or mustard gas, once that disperses, you're done, right? It's not going to continue. When you use a biological weapon of this sort, you know, particularly one in, in, in a landscape where it can spread through, through natural methods, you've got an ongoing epidemic that can infect entire regions. Um, it can infect entire armies. So um, yeah, so it, it had basically a very high kill rate, uh, a pretty high debilitation rate because you come down with a pretty severe fever very quickly. Um, and and a rapid uh, rapid rate of spread. Although I must say, their initial thought was that they were just going to spray. As a matter of fact, they loaded um, uh, shells with the uh, plague bacteria and tried to explode them over enemy targets, and they got almost no infection. Um, so their initial idea was we'll just we'll just spread the bacteria, um, but that turned out to be um, very poorly effective. Now, can from your research in your perspective at looking at from his first prison that he went to to when he moved to the second one did you notice a change in him at all like from what you can tell maybe it's your own personal opinion on it like do you see the experiments ramp up a lot more now they start going a little bit harder when it comes to human trials you, we mentioned the vivisections and things of that sort but i'm just curious if you notice a dramatic change in the actual commander's position on things we talked about him in the beginning but if we talk about the government's now full funding towards what he's doing, that I feel like would only ramp up some of his personality traits or some of the things that are going on with him already to a point where now you have no boundary. Even you could say he might not have had one before, but now it's like you just dipped into the insane pool. You start going more like the Joker from Batman. No, yeah, you're you're right in the sense because what he's done when he was at Zhang Ma is it was like proof of concept. All right. Um, he wanted to show that this was possible. When he moves to Ping Fan, given the amount of funding, the amount of resources and the pressure that's coming, he needs to take it from, isn't this an interesting possibility to um, tangible deliverables with dead bodies? So he needs to move it to an industrial scale, to something that's going to be used against um, the enemy. And when, you know, when he was in the, 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 at the prison camp, he experimented on humans, but as far as I can tell, he never they never moved to um, application of this technology against an enemy. Um, when they get to Ping Fan, he realizes, I think, that that this is for real, right? This is not just um, you know, this is not just some sort of evil playground. He's going to be expected to provide deliverables with dead bodies if he's going to continue to hold on to power and continue to attract uh, resources from his country. When you say that he realizes that, does that mean, are you saying that like, it's like a fear aspect or something that what he's about to go into? I, I, I you know, I think there is an element of, uh, I don't know if it's fear or anxiety. Um, so he's, you know, it, it's one of these Pressure. things where he's, yeah, he's convinced the, the military and, and uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the civil government, such as there was at that time, that that he is going to be able to provide, um, you know, potentially a war-ending weapon, right? He's he's got the weapon, um, and so in a sense, they call his hand. They say, you know, it's it's uh, at some point you've got to prove up, and that's that's pretty. Um, I mean, you know, if you're going to maintain power and you're going to um, you know, you're going to have this this uh, kind of uh, monomaniacal control over this whole network of play. You better have some deliverables. And you know, their their first attempt was the Russians had had a, a, a relatively limited assault at a place called Nomohan, um, and they tried using um, early biological weapons there, and that was that was kind of an interesting one because. Um, they were still goofing around, if you will, with with bacteria other than bubonic plague and cholera, and they tried dumping salmonella and typhoid uh, pathogens into the river. Um, and then they also exploded something like 2,000 shells, aerial burst of bacteria over the Russians. Um, and the infection rate was basically zero. 
Um, a fair number of Russians ended up dying in, in the course of that battle um, from dysentery and cholera. And Ishii took credit for that, even though he didn't actually introduce any dysentery or cholera to the battlefield. Um, so he was able to dupe, if you will, his superiors um, and convince them that the attack had been a success. But he knew, he full well knew that their efforts to dump bacteria into the water and explode shells over the Russians had no effect whatsoever. And so I think there was, uh, I think there was this genuine sense of, oh crap, um, our first, you know, battlefield test failed. Um, and I'm going to have to provide something much more effective, believable. You know, I can, I can spin a story this time, but you know, I've got to actually deliver the goods in, in the very near future. I wonder if he had one of those Oppenheimer moments where he's like, I became death destroyer of worlds when you realize it's hitting the big times and you got this weapon that does eventually become effective in what it's supposed to do. And you kind of question, you know, your own ethics in a sense, like, oh yeah, this is the real, real game here. But I'm curious when it, have you ever looked into I and I, this is from brief reading on this, but they tested things with weather as well too, like different ice temperatures or water temperatures on some of those. Was that to test the the chemical that they were using, or was that just a, another weird thing that they did? Well, yeah, I mean they, I mean not only were they doing biological warfare, but basically they had the human subjects, and so anytime you needed to do experiments on humans, right? you would go to unit 731 in order to conduct those. And so, yeah, they were doing things with temperature and they were, they were asking questions of themselves, like, you know, how do um, pilots survive? You know, we're not, you know, in at very high altitudes. Um, how do they survive in the midst of cold if a plane goes down? So they're looking at the capacity of the human body to withstand both very low air pressures in terms of pilots, as well as extremely severe environmental conditions in order to better understand um, how to keep their pilots alive, um, their troops alive in, in extremely adverse weather. And of course, you're not gonna do it on your own people. You're gonna try to determine the minimum lethal temperature using prisoners of one kind or another, mostly Chinese. Um, but as things unfold, Ishii makes the case that if we're going to use this against uh, the enemy, that enemy is going to include not only the Chinese, but it's going to also include Caucasians. And so this is when they also begin experimenting on um, POWs, uh, United States, as well as European POWs. So, and again, with this notion that, um, and, and so much here, you know, here's where we're kind of getting into the race thing. There's this notion that the races are very, very different. And therefore, just because we have a weapon that works on the Chinese, maybe it won't work on, you know, on uh, on the white Northern Europeans. Um, and racism plays a big, it plays a role there, but it also plays a really big role between Japan and China. Um, the Japanese uh, were extremely racist toward both the Koreans and the Chinese, see, seeing themselves as a as a superior race. Um, and of course, we make the mistake of assuming that the, the Japanese. Now they're just these um it's just these backward Asians, right? They they won't be able to figure out any really sophisticated warfare. So we didn't even really so our racism kept us from paying attention to what unit 731 was doing. Their racism opened the door for them experimenting on Chinese, Korean, and uh and um uh, white POWs. Um so racism plays a you know play it's this thread that runs through this this whole dark period of biological warfare history how did they get so many chinese people were they going around and picking them up like i, I just don't know if there was they had like a map or a brochure that was very entertaining for them to go sign up in because china does not acknowledge it at all and i i get it if it's like a horrible thing you don't really want to acknowledge in china i think every country is about not showing their weakness in a sense but it, to me, it, it's just fascinating to know that they got – you can talk about the number of people that Unit 731 did experiment on, and you don't hear about it that much. I mean I get it's not our history books and it's not our history that why would they teach it over here, but it's such an important event. I think it's more of a global issue. You know, I look at the world as a not just an independence or individual country's history. I look at it as like a world history as well too. You know, When a war happens, it affects everyone. It doesn't just affect us. 
Yeah, no, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, and, and some of it might be revealing their vulnerability. Although, you know, we do have, you know, that incredible book, The Rape of Nan, Nanking, right, or Nanjing. Um, so there's an acknowledgement of, of Japanese atrocities. Um, why the, the Chinese don't sort of advance more of this history? They, I mean, there was probably one to 2,000 uh, human guinea pigs killed a year. So the numbers weren't huge there, but the numbers who were killed in the course of biological attacks are staggering. Um, and I think it, it, it is a very good question as to why the Chinese don't sort of raise this as um, you know a, 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 an important chapter in world history for everybody to learn from. And it's interesting because if you say Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Everybody knows those stories, and it's this warning, sort of this global warning. Um, but if if you, um, you know, if you talk about uh, Yunnan province, or you talk about, um, you know, uh, you know these these other places where Baoshan, which is the city that was was attacked, um, people say they've never heard of this place. But but in in that attack, and that wasn't with with bubonic plague, that was with cholera. Um, the Japanese killed probably 200,000 um, Chinese in the course of the epidemic, the, the cholera outbreak that arose from their biological warfare attack. Um, and why, you know, why that doesn't get the attention that Hiroshima and Nagasaki get um, is actually, I, I think it's reasonably, it's, it's perplexing, although it's, a story between the Japanese and the Chinese, not between the Americans and the Japanese. So there may be some cultural, socio-political uh, stuff going on that explains why one has been high profile and the other one has been virtually invisible. I do think the conversation on Hiroshima has changed from when I was a kid, or at least hearing about it. It was like this thing of like, that's what we did. We showed how strong we were. We made them surrender. Then now that I'm older and I've looked a little bit more like Godzilla had a message about Hiroshima and we changed it because we tried to eliminate that message that was in there. And it's like, I think even Oppenheimer, the new movie with it even shows that there was not a need to drop those bombs. Um, but people bring up, oh no, they were arming children and things of that sort. I mean, I've talked to Peter Kuznick who wrote Untold History of the U.S. And he said that, you know, there was already evidence to support they were already getting ready to surrender, but we just had to pick something. And I think in Oppenheimer, they dramatize it up a little bit. He goes, don't bomb that city. That's me and my wife vacation there. Bomb any of these. And they list named a list. Now, that is a movie representation, but it just makes you think a little bit, too, because, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Well, stories like that. I mean, these stories are complicated, right? There's also evidence that Japan was on the verge of a. Of a, of a staggeringly deadly famine. Well, we know about Operation Cherry Blossoms at night that happened. So that's a crazy one. Well, yeah, but I mean, if, if that famine had unfolded in Japan, they probably would have lost more people in that course of that famine than they lost at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so if we hadn't bombed, um, would they, I, I, I don't know, right? Would we have gone to a, a marine invasion? Um, all of that is speculation. But what I like, in a sense, is that we have complicated that that story, right? It's not clear that we would have lost a million troops had we, it's not clear that we would have engaged in a, in a, in a land-based invasion. Lots of things aren't clear. It's all sort of post hoc, what if, I think this would have happened. I, you know, these alternative histories, which is fine, right? Because the world is complicated. Weirdly, I don't think that the Japanese attacks on the civilian populations of China are nearly as sort of morally complicated. Um, that those were out and out um, uh, attacks of civilian populations in order to generate essentially information. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, epidemics. Right? They 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 were generating bodies. They're, they they you know the you know, there was some military justification for the attacks in terms of American supply lines and whatnot. But, um, geez, the you know, uh, well, and I guess, you know, the same thing can be said for uh, what I'm, and that's a big thing in World War Two. Right. And it now it continues. And that is what is it to be a noncombatant that just has become incredibly complicated. 
in today's world. It's different looking at Japan and China's because like I, I heard this from someone who interviewed someone who was dropping the bombs at Pearl Harbor. And he had he asked the guy this older Japanese. He said the name of the guy. I couldn't reiterate it back to you. I'm barely able to pronounce. That's why I haven't mentioned those cities. I couldn't do it justice of being able to say that. But he was interviewing the guy and he asked him, when was the last time you were in America? And the guy said Pearl Harbor. And he said, what? You were there when it happened? He goes, no, I was dropping bombs at Pearl Harbor. And the guy goes, what? And he starts telling this story about how, and this guy's a historian. I think his name's uh, John J. Jahagan. And he mentioned how like one of the things that changed during the war was that when they would capture a U.S. ship, they would give the people back in the beginning. But then they realized that it was that wasn't stopping them because the America could always create another sub. So the new orders came out of you kill the people that you get on that ship, you kill them. And it changed the discussion because America realized it couldn't replace troops as easy as it could replace ships. And it's like that conversation you really don't hear about the other side of history, whether it's the other perspective. And that's why it's a good examination to get them all in there. Um, or at least learn from everyone. But it also, like the alternative history part, it makes it complicated to try and figure out like what's like, I, you want to answer to history and history, you start to realize does not have a one-way straight shot answer. There's always a million things going on and a million perspectives to understand of how it got into that place. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I mean, and again, not to go down the rabbit hole of Israel and Hamas, but I mean, that's a thousand year story <laughs> that continues to unfold in these incredibly complicated political, religious, cultural ways. Um, there isn't a simple story to be told there. I mean, all I'm convinced of is that that there's not there is not going to be a winner. Um, I don't think in war there ever is, but I have friends on both sides of that thing. And I'm just like, oh, I can't even, I don't have, I, I just, I can't, I don't know where to start. I just don't know where to look in. I don't know where to go. I don't, I don't know. It makes it difficult situations. But when it comes to, um, let's bring it back to unit 731 a little bit. But um, when did they start having ideas of putting these in like fleas and bombs and we're getting to places where we have plans like operation cherry blossoms tonight where they were trying to think about strategies of either launching missiles or doing something like what did any attacks ever happen i only know about the canceled one. Oh well certainly attacks well so we could there's two kind of two questions in there one is um you know so early so the question is the development of the technology early on they're dropping basically rats in parachutes that are infected, infested with fleas. It turns out not to be very effective. Um, so then they start putting large numbers of infected fleas in bomb casings, right? Um, that's more effective. Eventually they figure out that fleas, I don't know if you've ever had fleas on you, they are really tough little bastards. And they found out they could just, they could just basically expel them out of spray nozzles and they would drift down um, because of their hard bodies. Target. Yep, hard bodies, and they fall basically quite slowly. They don't have wings. Yeah, I was, I was listening they, last time you told me that. Yeah, it just rains down, all right, plague-infected fleas. Um, and so that, you know, that really starts picking up late 1930s. Between 19, say, 41 and 43, there's more than a dozen attacks on Chinese targets. Um, and during that period, there's probably somewhere around 100,000 casualties and in, 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 in these various cities. Um, and then they, you know, as, as you've suggested with Operation Cherry Blossoms at night, that was that was a plan to um, uh, to attack uh, San Diego. Um, that was an incredible, an incredible story in the sense that what they were going to do is they had submarines and on the deck of the submarine, they had um, airplanes that had folded wings. And so they could they could carry this airplane under the water, rise, open the wings, load it up with, in, in that case, they were interested in, in, in plague-infected fleas, and basically send out kamikaze pilots. Uh, this is relatively late, 1945, that this, this develops. Um, but they, they, the whole thing was, was, was underway, and they pulled the plug on it. Um, and it appears that the the Japanese leader uh, officer who pulls the plug on it isn't Ishii, um, but it's another fellow um, who is 
stops the operation of the direct attack on the American um, mainland for two reasons. One is fear of retaliation. The war is starting to go badly. Um, so they, you know, he realizes, geez, if we start a plague, uh, bubonic plague outbreak in, in San Diego, all the gloves come off. And uh, of course, they, they end up coming off anyway. But secondly, there was a sense of honor, right? This fellow who was not a sociopath said, what are we launching into the world? You know, this is a this is a course of war that we can never turn back. Once this genie is out of the bottle, um, there's no going back. We'll have started the, the potential of pandemics um, if we continue down this path. So they they pulled the plug on that one. Although there were other planned attacks, one on Bataan, one on Saipan, and then uh, a planned attack on Okinawa. All of those actually began in terms of the operation, but each of them through um, a, a very fortuitous event, uh, the sinking of a ship, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the uh, torpedoing of, of, of uh, a carrier, um, none of them actually came to fruition. They never really were able to deliver their attack. And, and on Bataan, they were ready to go, but it turned out they, had, they, they won in a sense, by conventional warfare, they they didn't need to resort to biological warfare. So they were ready um, to defend those islands, right on the on the U.S. march toward Japan, um, and they were ready with Operation Cherry Blossoms and I to attack the U.S. mainland. Um, and we would not have been ready um, for any of these. When it came to the guy who pulled the plug on it, I mean, you gotta wonder if they just took a nap and woke up and was like, I feel a lot better. I don't want to do this. You know, this sounds like a horrible because it's in those moments you really gotta think about. Thank God someone had the rationale to start going, Yeah, I'm not doing this. This is gonna it, I, whether it's fear of retaliation or not. I mean, I know with nuclear arms, for instance, it's mutually assured destruction that's keeping that basically at bay, but that's a strong thing. I mean, I know it's it's fragile in a sense of like it's what we're basing everything off of is that we won't nuke them and they won't nuke us. But it's that thinking in that moment of like, yeah, we're going to be doing something that is probably going to change everything from here on out. It's going to be a marking day. Even just the discovery of it is a, a moment in its own, but the actual use of it in a large scale invasion or attack or something of that sort. Thank God there's people in those moments that think like, no, wait, I don't want to do this. Right. And and I actually think there is this, you know, to go back to this, I mean, I've talked to lots of people in the military, there is a sense of honor, right? And there is a sense, and this goes all the way back to the 19, you know, to World War One, that the use of poison and the use of a gas, right, um, is dishonorable. That's unfair. You know, then the hunters talk about fair chase, right? This is why, you know, hunters, you know, don't want to use you know, uh, particular kinds of weapons or particular kinds of technology, right? Uh, you know, uh, thermal imagery to find the elk, right? Using, uh, you know, using a um, a drone, right? That that just seems not in the spirit. It seems dishonorable. Um, it, it it seems um, to, to to be outside the, the conceptual boundaries. And I think for many soldiers and many military leaders. Uh, the use of of both poisonous gases and disease um, somehow cross this line um, and make your victory, even if you win, dishonorable. It was like cheating. Well, there's a point where you're neutralizing an enemy, and then you're when well, there's a point where you're making them suffer till they are neutralized. And I think that line is, I mean, obviously both are bad, but. The making someone suffer, I feel like even everyone kind of acknowledges that that's not a right way to do a certain thing, unless you're trying to get answers. But that doesn't have a cause of death. I mean, I know we have a whole Rockefeller Commission that looked into torture to try and get answers, but none of those. I mean, they moved the guidelines a little bit about what they could use to be effective. But there is that. No, we don't want a result of death. That's not the point of it. We don't make someone suffer before they die. You do it in an honorable sense if you're going to do it at all. Yeah, interestingly, there's, I mean, there is this military notion that with diseases, you don't want a fast-acting lethal disease. Um, and, and some of this comes out of some, you know, historical consideration of the U.S. Civil War. 
Um, it, it turns out that if you just make a soldier really, really sick, right, such that they can't fight, but they continued to consume water, they continue to consume medical care, they continue to consume food, they've got to be transported. That's actually more valuable than just killing them. Well, it's just interesting that you mentioned a couple of times it was attacking the crops. That's a very strategic, very um, powerful thing when you talk about like, obviously, there's they already got embargoes on them, pushing them to a point. But if you look about neutralizing your enemy's supply lines, um, that's actually one of the reasons why a lot of our steel factory like Pittsburgh, for instance, weather is always usually kind of hazy. It's a little bit cloudy over there, but it's because back before you know, obviously we have a lot more hindsight now, but they thought if you put all these main industri industrial factories in these places with climates that are very cloudy and all this, they thought that an enemy couldn't see from above to be able to drop bombs and neutralize it so you could still manufacture weapons for the war instead of having all your supply areas destroyed, which would be the main target for a lot of people that are thinking from ending it as soon as possible. Yeah, no, I think that that, that does make sense. Right? The, the way of camouflaging or making difficult your target um and you know get, you know pushing back into this this moral question right of you know this guy pulls the plug on this and says this is just the wrong thing um that is you know that is a a, a, a struggle for military leaders throughout history and particularly perhaps in the last century and um you know what is you know, there's this push and pull, right? They're they're told to win, right? But they're also told don't win at all costs, unless your back is against the wall. So you've got this sort of cascade of moral uh, standards um, that kind of erode in the face of of desperation. I mean, so you know, to to take Vichy's, you know, one step further. Of course, you know, we drop the atomic bombs. The Russians pour over. Uh, the border right into into China. Ishi, it's clear that that Unit 731 is going to be overrun. Um, the you know the bass all of the infected rats into the countryside and starts another epidemic on his way out, right? Which is sort of this ultimate act of of unprincipled cowardice. Did he feel defeat? Did he feel defeat when he did that? You think? Oh, I again. Yeah, he knew that Japan was beaten. But remember, you know, you were asking, is is this all about Ishii or is this about a sense of patriotism and, and country? At this point, it's just pure self-interest, right? Um, and so he gets captured and he basically negotiates with his American captors and convinces them. He's a very convincing man. And remember, he convinces his own military to fund it. He convinces the military... Uh, the U.S. military, that he has biological, entomological warfare secrets. And we know at this point, right, we, we fully realize that we have fallen dreadfully behind in terms of biological warfare. Um, and so the other worry at that point is, well, you know, the Russians have captured a bunch of scientists from Unit 731 too, and the Cold War is unfolding. Do you really want the Russians to have the, the upper hand in what you know in in the coming cold war do you want to leave yourself without any good science that was done at 731 and so he basically exchanges trunks of documents um film and whatnot in exchange not for technically for in, in immunity but um it becomes effective immunity because uh we don't prosecute issue for war crimes so he's let off the hook um, in exchange, we traded um, his uh, punishment for his secrets, which turned out to be, for the most part, a bunch of scientific crap anyway. Um, and so it was a it was a bad trade. But we needed we were afraid that the Russians were going to have information that we weren't going to have. Um, so in that case, you know, uh, you know, justice gets exchanged. Um, you know, for expediency, right? So that we can get our biological warfare program up and running at Camp Dietrich um, in, in, in prepare ourselves for the coming Cold War in which, um, you know, we're pretty convinced that the Russians are doing the same thing with biological weapons. 
Um, and so he slips out. Um, you know, he's he lives he lives as, as a free man. Did it change your perspective learning about Unit 731 on anything, like from going into it and kind of learning more about from the insect studies and research? But then towards the end, when you realize that it's not just insects, but it's this whole thing that Unit 731 was and involved in. I mean, did it shock you as much as I'm kind of shocked? Yeah, but, I mean, I, 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 you know, you kind of always know that there are, that there's evil in the world, right? I mean, we can cast it in various ways. But the scale, right, it, it was just, but not only the scale of the research and the scale of the facilities, but the scale at which they were releasing these cholera-coated flies, right, which probably killed 400,000 Chinese in, in, in epidemics. They probably killed uh, 550,000 uh, people in the course of their biological warfare. And, and two things. One is just the scale of the depravity. Um, not only, you know, it's both quantitative and qualitative, right? It was, you know, it, going back to the vivisection, those weren't necessary scientifically or medically in any way. And so the depravity is both of a kind um, and an amount that was, that I had not really, you know, fully fathomed was, was, was possible in the world, um, you know, at least in this way and, and, and toward this end. Um, and, you know, the, and the number of people who were complicit in this, we're talking about, you know, 3,000 or 4,000 scientists and, and virtually all of them know, knew what was going on. Japanese government knew what was going on. Um, and actually the, the, the international scientific community, I mean, they either had to be stupid or blind, right? Because the Japanese were publishing um, research and reporting the results of, of diseases on organisms that they called Manchurian monkeys. There's no such thing as a Manchurian monkey. They were reporting fevers of 105 degrees. No primate, no primate other than humans runs a temperature of 105 degrees. There's no excuse for our not knowing. And I think we knew. And so what was the complicity um, in terms of the scientific community? Yeah, you know, coming out of science... You know, you know, maybe I have low expectations of the military, but maybe I had naively high expectations of scientists. Um, but but clearly, but clearly, uh, uh, this is this is shocking. And and um, you know, we go back to where you started this conversation, which is why don't people know? Um, and I I think we deserve to be we deserve to be shocked. We deserve to we we need to know both the depth and the scale of of the depravity, um, and we need to think about sort of in modern terms what what happens with ultranationalism. What happens with a kind of hyper patriotism? What happens when you turn the enemy into the other? What happens when you infuse war with racism? All of which are incredibly important contemporary questions. The word enemy is a heavy word because you can be so blinded and disconnected from realizing that's another person on that side of the thing. And to be honest, I got that from a movie and that was uh, uh men who stared goats. When the guy started up that Jeff Bridges character started up that little future Jedi's project, he mentioned that he noticed all these guys were shooting at the enemy, but they were aiming at the tree line and not actually aiming at them. They weren't trying to hurt that man. They were just trying to, make it look like they were doing their part but it's that thing of a lot of people in vietnam everything like that all you heard was enemies commies all this type of wording that disconnects you from the person and you realize the person that you're battling and they're the same way with wordage probably for us as well too but it's about that disconnect that starts to happen and it has to happen in war or you realize that you can't fight because there is a human being on the other side of it which makes it interesting that they thought there was biological differences um, in between a Caucasian or a Japanese or someone like that, because it seems like if they found something that would be a distinct difference besides skin color or something like that, then they would run with it to be like, oh, don't worry, that's a different, and that you would see a whole other alternative history on that subject. But we're two eyes, two legs, two arms, most people. I mean, it's we're the same down to our genetics, besides you know, distinct differences of where we come from and heritage and all that, but. We're human beings. It's all one species. We all agree on that front, but somehow we don't remember that. 
No, you're absolutely right. I, I think it's, you're absolutely right. And even in terms of, of training the infantry, right? You've got to create an other, right? You, you've, you've got to dehumanize the enemy. And actually, we could turn this all the way back in, into entomology again. One of the ways of doing that is, and this goes all the way back well into the 1800s, is to refer to the enemy as insects, vermin. Um, the, the Germans did that with regard reference to the Jews. Um, Americans did that with reference to the Indians. The Hutus did that with reference to the Tutsis. Um, you know, you refer to your enemy, not as just another, but as vermin, right? As, as an infestation, um, you know, as a source of contamination. Um, you know, not to go too political here, but that's language that our, our recent ex-president has used with regard to the movement of, of people across our southern border, um, the contamination of the American blood. Um, and that is worrisome, deeply worrisome language, because it is this it is this move toward dehumanizing. And when you dehumanize, then, yeah, you become capable of killing because you're not killing, you know, you're not killing another person. Of course, the other way of doing that is to kill at a distance, right? Which is achieved with bombings. It's achieved, you know, drones, right? Uh, you know, you don't have to aim the rifle on the battlefield or, you know, even more intimately, you know, uh, stab with your bayonet. Um, you know, and, and, you know, for me, one of the movies that kind of drives that home was Saving Private Ryan, right? That, that intimacy of the violence, the one-on-one, -on -one, the personal, um, right. And that, that, that's, that's psychologically, I think, very different than opening, you know, the Bombay doors and, uh, and you know, and letting fly or firing the missiles, um. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons, one of the ways we try to get off the hook with biological weapons, right? Um, again, we're not there. Um, you know, we're not caring for the sick. We're not seeing the sick. We're not watching them die. Um, you know, it, it, it creates, this, creates this distance. Well, Jeff, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I know it's a heavy subject, so I appreciate you, you know, digging up some info for me and being able to talk about it i thought it was an important one because you know i think history is fascinating and i don't i talked to a lot of my friends don't even know what unit 731 is or just other events of that magnitude when it comes to biological i'm still a little iffy on biological and chemical warfare when it comes down to the science and all the different names of chemicals used dioxin is one i'm a little bit afraid of because they use scientists from the Nazi stuff and Unit 731 to experiment dioxin on prisoners. And I think that's still going on today, the U.S. Justice. And I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talked about it. Um, but that's a, that's one. It's a chess. I forgot who the Holmesburg prison. If you look up that one, look into that. The guy was paid by pharmaceutical companies to test this dioxin chemical on the prisoners. And um, I don't, yeah, pretty sure it's a big pharma company, whether that or it's the military to test it on these prisoners. And he didn't get the results he wanted. Nobody broke out in this horrible infection and things like that. So that's all they wanted was test this amount on this and see if it hurts or it affects anybody. He goes, well, I want to see results happen. And he upped it 10 times what he was supposed to and waited till these people got these horrible burns on their skin and things of that sort. And I'm like, that's just like ishy. See what happens. I want to go a little bit farther. It's like, I don't know why we have this profile of people we want to put in our military that have that background of like, hey, I'm kind of nuts. You got any cool ideas for me? But I guess that means that they're effective. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. And some of it is sort of the, what you call it? The kind of the brutal political practicality, right? Of, um, you know, we need this weapon. And if, you know, if we can find somebody who is brilliant, but uh, um, sociopathic, uh, you know, then, then we'll take it. And, and expediency, I mean, that's, you know, that's, the, you know, we go back just for a second. It's one of the reasons why we may not hear so much about this story is that following World War II, the defeat of Japan, right? Right on the heels of that comes the Cold War, right? And there was even references, in a sense, to Japan as a uh, uh, an American aircraft carrier, right? 
we needed Japan. We needed bases in Japan um, because we, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, that whole story, and we get the, you know, the movement there to the communists. We've got the Cold War going on China and Russia. We need, we need to be, to have a foothold, a military foothold in that part of the world. And the only place to have that was in, in Japan. So burying that story um, was in our own political interest. Well, Jeff, I appreciate the time. Like I said, again, is there a place where people can find any of your links? If you have a Twitter or anything like that, websites, books, I can, I know you got your Amazon books. I can link that in there, but do you have any other social handles? Um, I do. I don't use them as often as I should. I would just say to go to either to my webpage, which is I think Jeffrey Lockwood author, um, or, you know, like you said, uh, just put up the links to, uh, to my books and uh, and that way somebody can dig into this uh, more deeply and i've got a fair number of references in there and so if people want to get access to original source material or figure out you know others who have told the story that i'm putting together from various sources um they can go to my book which will then lead them to to other sources i'm going to link all your links in the description it's been a pleasure chatting and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the Bunch.